Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I review one entry in the bibliography uh, of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. This week, I took a break from the books in order to slog through the adaptation of Firestarter. I'm going to get to that in a little bit, but first, I want to start off positive, uh, and I want to read some listener emails. But honestly, everybody, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for writing in, for liking the page on Facebook, for the iTunes reviews, and just all the likes and comments on Instagram, on Tumblr, on Pinterest. As of right now, the podcast has had almost 1,500 listens, and it hasn't even been two months yet. The podcast has been heard in 16 different countries and 33 different states. You know, to me, who expected, at the most, maybe one listener, this is a huge success. So honestly, honestly, seriously, just thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, and just so you know, I uh, by the time you're listening to this, uh, these numbers might have increased. When I first sat down and started recording before I even published the first episode, I, I made sure that I had eight um, episodes in the can ready to go because I knew that with a project of of this scale, I wasn't going to be able to to read a book in a week. I needed to give myself a lot of lead time. So, you know, just just as of right now, I I, I had um, put up the the Night Shift review, and that referred, in the Night Shift review, I I talked about Randall Flagg um, and and the the celebrity casting that um, maybe Matthew McConaughey might play Randall Flagg in, in the adaptation of The Stand. And I said in the podcast, I said last night the news hit, and the news hit uh, in in mid to late August. So it's almost October now by the time I'm recording, um, and it just and the podcast just dropped uh, about six days ago. So I think that kind of gives you an idea of, of of when these are being recorded and when they're being put out. So just just in case there was any sort of wonder how I was working with this, um, and the whole process is I, I read with the book in one hand and my iPhone in the other hand, and I just take notes as I go. I start off with sticky notes, um, and I tried organizing them, and it was a complete disaster. Uh, but then with the 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 iPhone note taker, it just I'm able to just organize my thoughts as I go, and I and I just kind of polish it up a little bit at the end. And so it just makes things a, a lot easier. But that's that's my process, and if anyone's more interested, I can definitely get into it. But you're not here for the process. You're here for Stephen King uh, and the King cast. Um, and today is Firestarter, but like I said, first I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the viewer email. Because as I've said before, I, I don't want to do this alone. Um, this, is the, this is my voice, and it's my thoughts coming at you on a week-to-week basis. But... I definitely want you to be able to share your experiences with Stephen King, um, your thoughts on my thoughts. Um, and that's not necessarily just uh, an invitation for you to just write in and say, you know, I agree with you. I, I really do want you to write in if you don't agree with me, if you see something different in the text or in a movie. You know, I uh, the um, Shining review just came out not last week, but the previous week. So I'm 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 really hoping that there's a lot of dialogue around your your thoughts of the Stanley Kubrick edition. I'm going to read a couple emails that that discuss it, but I, I I definitely you know the more that I that you can share, you know I think that the better that we all are. Like I said, the the whole point of this is to really put King back in in the cultural conversation. And I think that the more we're able to talk about it, the the, the more we're, we're getting close to achieving that goal. So, uh, first is from Clayton. And Clayton writes, Loved the Carrie Book Podcast. Loved the introduction. I became a King fan as a child. I was very into watching scary movies and not really into reading. Once I started watching It, Carrie, The Shining, Cujo, and Pet Cemetery, or however he spelled it, I instantly wanted to start reading scary stories. So I started off with Carrie then Salem's Lot, then The Long Walk. Wow, loved that one. Then later I would purchase but never finished Bag of Bones and Everything is Eventual. Because I never finished those books, I kind of strayed from King. I got back into reading just recently around 27 years old, reading the Wicked series, totally different author, I'm sure you know. Once I finished all four books, I was looking for a new series to read because I enjoyed that series so much. Well... I remembered King having a series that I thought was about three or four books called The Dark Tower. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) I'm on the third book now and read a short story in Everything's Eventual on The Dark Tower. I have to say, I'm going to be a huge fan. I'm so glad I got back into King. I appreciate his work so much more as an adult. 
and I'm so excited uh, to reread the books I read in the past and also classics like The Stand and It that I've never read. Awesome podcast again. Keep up the good work. P.S. After reading the rest of the series, I'm going to reread Salem's Lot. I heard there was a reference to The Dark Tower and also The Stand. So excited. Right now I'm on The Wastelands and I'm reading about Jake's story and how he found the rose and key. Wow. Love it. So Clayton, thanks for writing in. And I'm telling you, if you're on The the Wasteland right now, uh, just buckle in, buddy, because it, 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 uh, it gets really, really interesting from this point forward. And I'm I'm very jealous that you get to uh, embark upon your journey to the tower for the first time. I, uh, I've uh, recently recorded the uh, the Dark Tower or the the Gunslinger episodes, and those will be um, dropping in late October. And I'm I'm really really looking forward to to see what the discourse is. Um, and I do expect, uh, and I'm hoping for a, a lot of uh, email input from that because I know that once you step into the world of the Dark Tower. You're in it, and you advance to a, a higher level of Stephen King fandom. So, you know, Clayton, I don't know where you're going to be in, in terms of the tower at that point, but uh, definitely, definitely, definitely write in your thoughts on, on the Gunslinger um, and any other thoughts that you might have that you want to share on on how the Dark Tower and the Gunslinger and your, how your experiences tie into Stephen King as a whole. But definitely, thank you for writing in. This was a, was a great email. The next we have uh, from Benjamin. And Benjamin actually sent three, um, three awesome emails. So um, I was going to space them out, but I'm just going to jump all in because the rest of this podcast after the viewer emails is not really positive. So I just wanted to make sure that I have a good balance here. So Benjamin writes, hey, hey. Just listened to your podcast and thoroughly enjoyed it. Was impressed by a time you put in. I can tell you aren't just talking and spouting your thoughts. You really put the work in. Thanks for putting in the time. It's refreshing. So let me spout a couple thoughts after a couple beers and no prep work. The distrust of the government kingism. Pretty sure that was in both Hearts in Atlantis and the Tommyknockers in my top five King novels. Maybe 11, 22, 63. Can't remember too well on this one. And I just want to stop right here and say um, when I first started uh, the podcast um, and I had thoughts about what the, the, the viewer email um, and conversation would be, I initially thought like, yeah, definitely send in your, your King casts. And then I completely forgot about that. So, um, Ben, thank you so much for, for sharing the, what, what you're picking up on, on Stephen, um, Kingisms. I think that Kingisms are, are really important. And I know that there's definitely ones out there that I'm not picking up on. So the more that you can, the better we all are for it. He continues, um, and I'm curious, are you going to review Dance Macabre? I've never read the whole thing, but Stephen King does talk a lot about Shirley Jackson and his own Kingisms in there. Um, I just um, purchased it again. I have a beat-up old-school paper copy, paperback copy that I read when I was too young to really uh, appreciate it. And I, I'm going to use it as a reference tool, but I'm not going to review it on the podcast. Not, not yet. I mean, in a few years... And this is a very intimidating thought, but in a few years after I have um, sort of neared the end of the pod of the podcast um, on a week to week basis, because at some point I'm going to catch up, um, then maybe I'll revisit it and do some supplementary reviews, um, you know, of of maybe on writing, on Dance Macabre, on the uh, Dark Tower, um, uh, Marvel comic adaptations, and and some of the lesser quality films that I'm not going to review the the first time around. So. As of right now, no, but, you know, never say never, maybe maybe down the road. Uh, he writes, I also have a couple thoughts on the racism, black dialogue thing. So, you know, if this is your first time tuning in to the, the Stephen King cast, welcome. Uh, the What he's referring to here is, and if this is your first time, we're, we're talking about Stephen Kingisms here. And what a Kingism that I've identified is, it's just a trope. It's a trait. Uh, it's a part of his writing. It, it's a pattern that you see across um, his stories and his books. And one thing that he tends to do, he he sometimes has um, characters that happen to be black um, speak in, in kind of a jive or old timey, you know, plantation slave dialect. Which I just, as I've said, I, I haven't really criticized it much just explain that i i i haven't quite felt uh, decided how i feel about it and 
the terms of the racism, when he says racism, I, I don't mean that Stephen King and Ben doesn't mean that Stephen King is racist. What that means is that Stephen King uses racism to I to define a villainous character or to point out that a character is not supposed to be liked. It's sort of just like really um, bad frosting on a foul cake. Um, and I've made the point that it he's so good at creating villain, villains and characters across the board that the racism just kind of seems excessive. So um, Ben writes, I thought about a lot um, this a lot as well. One of my favorite Stephen King novels probably comes in second is Bag of Bones, a novel uh, that our, our first uh, viewer, Clayton, didn't finish. So Clayton, go out there and read it. It's it's Ben's second favorite. And I remember, I need to reread, reread Bag of Bones because I only read it once, but I, I distinctly remember reading it at the time and saying to myself and, and recognizing that his writing improved. In terms of story, I don't remember it being that great, but I remember the writing itself being powerful. It, it really affected me. Um, and currently, I'm actually, just so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading, rereading Horns by uh, his son, Joe Hill, for an upcoming review uh, for the podcast. Uh because the movie is coming out of Horns, and I just wanted to to celebrate, uh, I wanted to celebrate that, and I, I I just feel like Bag of Bones. Maybe I could be wrong, but has more of a Joe Hill style. I'll get there eventually. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm interrupting your email. Um, you go on to write a large part of that deals with racism. I've seen language. I've seen that language, the black dialogue in his work a lot too, and I've sat with it as well. Still haven't read Mr. Mercedes, so I have no frame of reference there. You're not missing out if you haven't read it, by the way. But I think a large part of why it sits funny with me is that the language of race, ethnicity, etc. tends to develop a lot from generation to generation. I believe that it was a very big part of Stephen King's life, and probably still is, to represent African Americans, black people, I never know how to be PC anymore, um, in a kind of intelligent light. It seems to be one of his causes. African Americans appear time and time again. Stephen King comes from the 60s. The civil rights movement was very real for him. He experienced it. I never quite got this until I read Hearts in Atlantis, which in my opinion is one of the best stories about the 60s that there is. The 60s tends to be sensationalized in a way that's a little overdramatic to me and probably anyone who came after the 60s. But Hearts in Atlantis, I thought, was a good representation of what it was like to be young and part of that time. And the civil rights movement was very much a part of the 60s. Stephen King believed in it. Like a lot of people who lived through the 60s, it was a serious part of their critical thought about the world. Just like South Park, Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky, Iraq and Iran, Nirvana, and eventually, skip a few years, Barack Obama, have now become a part of people's critical thought nowadays. People who are the same age now as Stephen King was when he wrote The Shining. The problem I've noticed with racial thought, even progressive thought, is that it tends to get dated real quick. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's about an entire race of people, not just one or two people. Sure, if there was just one black person, like there is just one data from Star Trek The Next Generation, it might stay current. But when you're talking about hundreds of millions of people, maybe even a billion people, the language has a hard time staying current. I don't know. It's just a guess. I think a good example of this is Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves, when it came out, was huge. I believe that Kevin Costner is an honorary member of, of the Sioux Tribe because of that movie. But nowadays, a lot of people have a problem with that movie. Sure, it's kind towards Native Americans. However, the representation of the noble savage has come under a lot of criticism since that movie came out. Nonetheless, at the time, it was very well received and probably did a lot of good in regards to critical thought towards Native Americans, especially in comparison to a John Wayne film. However, since then... The language has moved on. I think that Stephen King suffers from the same curse. Current and edgy at the time, but sadly dated 30 plus years later. Just a thought, could tell it was a weird topic to broach uh, concerning Dick Holleran in The Shining. But it's a topic that will come up again with Stephen King because it is a part of his work. And it's a controversial topic, one that has the potential of offending people. I can understand it being awkward, um, being an awkward one to deal with as you put a podcast out into the universe. You could have easily have just left it out, not mentioned it, accolades for going someplace uncomfortable. Thought maybe my own little diatribe could help. Anyway, I hope I didn't go on too long. Thanks for listening. Enjoyed your cast. Looking forward to more. Best to you, Benjamin. Ben, um, thank you so much for writing in. Thank you for 
for sharing your your thoughts here on on this particular Stephen Kingism. The whole point of this podcast is to put Stephen King's works into the context, you know, of of his time, his works in the context of the whole. And I think that you did uh, an outstanding job, certainly better than I could. And I haven't really. I've kind of danced around it. I haven't jumped in because I I don't know. I don't. I know. I know that I don't know enough. Um, and I I believe a friend of mine um, uses a quote. I think it's from Harlan Ellison. I want to say. Um, but it's a quote that stuck with me. And it's and I'm paraphrasing, but it's along the lines of, um, you know, everyone thinks that they're entitled to their opinion. They're wrong. They're entitled to an informed opinion. Um, and I think that's so powerful, and I know that I'm not informed enough to have any sort of opinion on the subject, but Benjamin, everything that you say sounds very, very right, and it, it speaks to Stephen King because, as I've said, I don't – he's not – he's not – he's not racist at all. You know, he clearly is someone that advocates for the little people, for the underdog, um, for, for everyone. He looks – you know, his whole writing is about the good of humanity, so clearly he's not um, – which is why the, these little things really stick out. But I think that they stick out now because this is the, the day and age that, that we live in. So just thank you for, for writing in. This was an awesome, awesome email. Um, and then Ben writes in again about, uh, about The Shining. Um, and he writes, the, the Shining is King's scariest book for me. I found a beat-up copy in a free books box at a library. I wound up reading it in an empty apartment, no furniture, no company. My wife had moved to our new apartment in a new city, and I was finishing up our old life in our old house in our old city. I was sleeping on the floor in a sleeping bag. There was no furniture. The floor was made of wood. There were a lot of echoes in the dark. It really intensified the whole experience, made The Shining's empty elevator all the more scary. I had dreams about strangers standing over me and just staring at me. That's terrifying. I could feel them in my sleep. I'd wake up and lay there, convinced they were still there, staring at me in the dark. Eventually, I'd gather enough courage to reach for my lamp. It was a very small distance from the sleeping bag to the lamp. But in the dark, some unknown stranger staring down at me, it felt so very far. Once the light came on, of course, there was no one there. And I could never go back to sleep. What do I do when I can't sleep? I read. Thus, I read a good portion of The Shining at 3 in the morning, completely terrified. It was both great and awful. Anyway, that's my history with The Shining. That is such a great anecdote. That is such a great anecdote. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of you have very similar anecdotes. Please share in because I think that if Stephen King was listening to this, he would be he would have a, a giant grin um, from, from ear to ear to hear that. That's fantastic. Oh, what a good story. Thank you for writing in. Uh, then we have Dwayne, uh, and Dwayne writes, uh, your show is one of the highlights of my podcast listening week. And as a podcast listener myself, I know exactly how you feel. So for the podcast to be for you, what many others podcasts are for me, I, I, I there's really not a kind of word that I can use to describe that feeling. It's just, thank you. Thank you. Great insights on the shining as well. I'm looking forward to next week's show regarding the, the Kubrick film. In my opinion, Kubrick's film is a great horror movie, but a poor Stephen King adaptation. Uh, I totally understand King's frustration with the film, but it did bring high-profile exposure to SK during his early career. So that's a win. Um, so, Dwayne, uh, by this point, you've um, listened to the uh, – or you've had the opportunity to listen to the uh, – the movie review. So I, I hope that you're still listening, even though I'm a Kubrick fan um, and I'm a huge fan of the Kubrick film. So if you have not listened to the reviews so far, and this is your first time, um, I, I I review the 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 film or the the book first, and then then the movie. So if you're a fan of the book and want to get a pure book uh, review, you can certainly do so. And if you if you don't really know the book that much and you just want to tune in for the, the movie review, you certainly can. And I break down a um, the book versus movie in the movie review. So you can head uh, to, to those episodes there. And then uh, Ben is back and he writes in about uh, The Shining movie. Um, enjoying the dialogue you're creating. 
Thanks ahead of time for reading my thoughts and my two cents. I can go on about Stephen King, as we know, but oddly, don't know that many people I I, I don't know that many people I can have in-depth discussions about King with in my day-to-day life. For some reason, King fans, fanatics, are never where I am. I know they exist, though, and that's the point of this. I, I want to be able to bring us together so we can have these conversations. So, Benjamin, um, I'm hoping that someone writes in a response to your awesome emails so far, and we can continue the conversation that you've begun here. So uh, Ben continues, my major thought I had on The Shining, book versus movie, was that the overlook in the book had much more of a personality. It felt much more responsible for Jack's transformation. And I, um, I don't recall in my review, in my book versus movie, what I, uh, what I said I thought won the battle between book or movie. Um, did I say the book? I think that I should have said the book. Or was it a tie? It might have been a tie. I don't know, but I completely understand. I completely, I agree with that. Also how Danny's powers, his shining, powered up the hotel. I never quite got that from the movie. Agreed. It seemed more just a freakish series of events. Yes, yes, I I, I completely agree with that. Whereas in the book, Danny's powers, Jack's tragic flaws, and the nature of the Overlook all seemed to combine into this fierce and tragic series of events. Totally true. Um, It just so happened that 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 really wasn't um, Stanley Kubrick's interest, but I, you know, I, I didn't really ever look at it like Danny's powers, Jack's tragic flaws, and the nature of the Overlook seem to combine that way. Like, they're the three out-of-control cars just heading in the same um, direction for this massive collision. The movie felt a little bit more like Jack being in a haunted hotel caused him to go crazy. The book felt a little grander to me, as if the Overlook had more of a plan than that. Um, And I believe that it did. The Overlook in the book is much more manipulative, much more sentient. Um, It is an entity. Um, Whereas in the movie, it is... It's a thing. It's a dark thing. It's an evil thing. But it doesn't seem to have a thought process. It's just... It is like the rest of the movie. It's pure feeling. It's tone. It's the tone... It creates a mood, it creates a feeling and an emotion within you. It changes who you are on a fundamental level um, simply by being what it is. It's a completely different experience. But yes, I do agree that in the book, the Overlook was a creature. It's one of those weird King adaptations for me where I find the movie to be more depressing than the book. Yeah, it is. Uh, Quite often it's the other way around. The Shawshank Redemption... Stand By Me, even The Stand, I found overall to be a little bit more optimistic, a very Hollywood interpretation of his work. Yes. However, there are a couple where I actually saw the movie first, read the book second, and found the book to be a little bit more upbeat. The Shining is one of those, The Mist and Carrie being a couple of others. The Overlook exploding, the innkeeper forgetting his name right now, surviving, Dick Holleran is his name, all of them going off and being survivors together, it all felt more upbeat to me. Jack freezing in a maze always felt like somewhat of a letdown to me in the movie. And after watching the making of The Shining, it sort of makes sense. Kubrick didn't know how to end the movie when he started it. He came up with it during filming. The end ultimately feels like that to me, a choice that could uh, be lived with by the filmmaker, and one that was probably infinite easier to film than the hotel exploding. I think part of the reason I enjoy a lot of King's work is that he does, for the most part, kill the bad guy at the end, for the most part. And there's a satisfaction in that. Horror movies don't always do that. There's a big culture of letting the evil live on, up in the mountains, waiting for its next victim. I personally think that tactic should be used sparingly. If I start a story, I want a solid ending. For the most part, King has done that for me. The Shining movie didn't do that as much, wasn't as grand as I would prefer. It was a lame death for Jack. Arguably, my favorite and perhaps most disturbing scene in the book was when Jack beat his face to a pulp with that croquet mallet while Danny watched. It was so horrific, but somehow expressed the Overlook's personality so much. And I agree. And when I first um, got the, this email, I looked at it um, on my phone, I just immediately pictured Jack Nicholson doing this to his face. And I said, wow, that would have been an incredible uh, scene in the movie. 
And it, it is horrific. It, I mean, that does show to Danny that his father is completely gone. Something else is there. And it's, that is disturbing. It, it's, thank you for pointing that out. I, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're reading, and especially if it's something that you've read before, you know, that that initial impact is gone. And it, it's just something that you're already familiar with. You're, you're desensitized to it. Um, and again, this is why these these emails are so important because I, I didn't pick up exactly on just how creepy and, and awful that scene is. That's great. That's great. Um, I think it was a loss to not have it in the movie. Danny himself was such an amazing character and so strong for being only five. Once again, an amazing child character written by King. I could go on forever about that. King writes better children characters than any other writer, in my opinion. And Benjamin... That's an opinion I certainly agree with, and I think many of our listeners will also agree with. And Danny was the first very young kid he'd written about, wasn't he? Yes, um, Danny was very, very young. Um, probably the youngest of the character. Uh, no, no, he's got Gage Creed coming up. Gage is pretty, pretty young. Um, but most others had been teenagers up until this point in Gage's and King's career. Anyway, the beating face to pulp scene i felt summed up so much it summed up danny and his growth as a character in the whole process his inner strength and jack's transformation into basically an overlooked puppet these were things that were left out of the movie i also think a big re reason the movie was good was a success had to do with jack nicholson jack nicholson dominated the screen every time he was on he was charismatic freaky and funny all at the same time a big reason i rewatched the shining is because of him has nothing to do with the story, Stephen King or Stanley Kubrick. It's because I want to see Jack Nicholson. In my opinion, he is the reason to see that movie. What if he hadn't been in it? Would anyone still care? Would The Shining have been a hit in the first place? I mean, for Christ's sake, it had Jack Nicholson in it. Multiple Academy Award winner. Arguably one of the greatest actors to have existed. It's a joy to watch him in crap films. I think ultimately The Shining is a Jack Nicholson vehicle first and foremost. I think King and Kubrick tie for second place. And I think that I think you're onto something. I, I think that The Shining is just one of those movies where it had everything that it needed. It had the right director, the right cinematographer, the right location, the right score, the right actor, the right story at the right time. I think if any one of those things was missing, it would not be The Shining. But none of those things were missing, and it is The Shining. So I, I, I don't, I, I don't think the movie would have worked with Jack Nicholson. I don't think the movie would have worked without Stanley Kubrick. I don't think the movie would have worked if it didn't have those sweeping location shots. Um, I think that every single aspect of that movie and what they, what that aspect contributed helped make that movie the movie. Anyway, I hope I haven't gone on too long, Benjamin writes. Like I've said, I've had, um... King opinions bottle up inside me with nowhere to go. Hope it wasn't a bore, and thanks for listening. Best to you and looking forward to more podcasts. Thank you, Benjamin. Keep these emails coming because these emails are awesome. Thank you. Um, and Heather from Ireland uh, writes, Hi, my name is Heather. I'm 23, and I live just outside Dublin in Ireland. First off, I just wanted to say thank you for making such an amazing podcast. I'm addicted. You're welcome, and thank you for writing in. You commented on a photo of me and my collection on my Instagram, asking me what my favorite King book is, and I said it's between The Stand and It, but I really couldn't choose. I've had so many favorites, but one wouldn't want to describe myself as a tower junkie. I'm halfway through the saga now, and I'm enjoying it, but I feel I'll always be a stand-alone novel kind of girl. Stephen King means so much to me, and I've been reading him for the past 10 years. I grew up in a pretty small town in Ireland with not much to do, so any chance I got my hands on a book of his, I would, like yourself, binge read. People are always shocked to find out I have over 50 King books because generally most SK fans over here are men who are over the age of 30. <laughs> there isn't a huge amount of constant readers where I live, so it's really nice to see all of his diehard fans online and know I'm not the only crazy one. Thanks again for being so awesome. Keep up the good work, Heather. Well, Heather, thank you for just for writing in, for for listening, for sharing. Um, you know, I mean, I've I've been fortunate enough to talk to a lot of Stephen King fans. Um, just when I grew up, 
you know, I mean, I, I, I grew up in the 80s and, you know, I, I was reading King in the early 90s. So, I mean, I wasn't the only one. A lot of people were and people were familiar with his books. And so I was able to have a lot of awesome conversations and these conversations and the books themselves helped shape who I am. And so this, I was able to have this experience. But just, you know, if you haven't had this experience, you know, Thank you for for being able to write in, and I'm glad that the podcast is is able to give you a little bit of of that experience. And feel free to to write in more. And uh, we have CJ. CJ writes, I'm settling in to enjoy Episode 7, Night Shift, but I have to pause and shoot you a letter. Not because you're wrong about anything, but because you are so incredibly right. Matthew McConaughey is inspired casting for good old RR, the walking dude himself, Randall Flagg. Flag is such a rare villain, inspiring fear, hate, humor, disgust, and not a little pity. But I'm always thrilled when he is on the page. I think McConaughey can bring that to the screen, along with the very necessary warped charm that only Walter O'Dim exudes. I'm glad I found your show through Instagram, of all things. I really am. You are doing a great job peeling back the layers that King uses to craft his stories and sharing them in an intelligent and interesting way. As a guy who is working hard to bring his own stories to light, I tend to look at to King as one of my heroes. In fact, the greatest compliment I've received is being compared to a, a cross between Stephen King and Lee Child as a writer. I only wish. I'm always happy to learn new tidbits and see his work through a new perspective. Thanks so much for doing what you do, CJ. So, CJ, thank you for writing in. Um, and... Uh, I would just say, you know, if you're writing, keep on writing and follow the advice of Stephen King. Um, and that is to make sure that you write every day. Um, that is advice that I myself do not follow. Um, shame on me. Um, but, you know, do do what I don't do um, and do what Stephen King does and write every day. Um, and and uh, I'm, I'm happy that the, the podcast is able to give you an insight on the writing process. Um, that's huge. So I think from all of these emails, we're, we're getting a little bit, the, the podcast, you, you're able to get a little bit of, of something different, you know, for everyone. And that's, that's something really special. So I'm, I'm glad that this is enjoyable for people. It's meaningful for people. It's, it's the conversation that they never had. Um, it's a way to just share their thoughts and it, it, you know, it, it gives them insight on, on uh, the the process of writing, so that's that's awesome, awesome. Thanks everyone for writing in. Um, you know, keep the emails coming. Um, like I said, we have the Dark Tower review coming up soon, um, and I would love to share um, as many thoughts on that as possible. And I do don't want to toot my own horn, but I I, I did record the the Gunsinger episode uh, a couple weeks ago. I'm pretty proud of it. It's a good one. So for those of you who are um, Gunslinger and Dark Tower junkies. Um, I knew that I had to do this one right, and I feel as though I, I, I did it justice. So look forward to that. Thank you, everyone, for, for listening. You know, Keep writing in. Um, if you haven't uh, written a review on iTunes, um, please feel free to do so. Um, I think that the, the more iTunes reviews it gets, it sort of bumps it up. And that, that means that more people will be able to listen to it. That means that, that your thoughts will, will be able to be heard by more. It means that, um, you know, Stephen King, uh, the, the discussion around Stephen King will be listened to by more people. So, um, you know, feel free to, to write that iTunes review. You know, feel free to write in um, and share your thoughts at StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. Feel free to, to, to look at any of the Instagram pictures and, you know, participate in that uh, conversation um, on Instagram, Stephen Kingcast, on Tumblr, Stephen Kingcast. You can like the Facebook page, Stephen Kingcast, Twitter is Stephen Kingcast, and Pinterest is Stephen Kingcast. So there's so many opportunities to engage in this and not just listen to it, but you can be an active participant as well, and that is the whole purpose of this because um, we are all constant readers together, and I think that's important for constant readers um, to be able to talk to one another. So feel free to do so, um, and I'll do what I can to, to keep that dialogue going. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for the review of Firestarter, the movie. Um, and my first thought while I was watching the movie is, what the hell am I watching? The groovy jams of a slow disco beat play out over the Universal logo, and I'm half convinced that I'm about to watch a biography on the life of the Gibb brothers. 
Slow synthy sounds play out over a black backdrop with twirls of smoke whispering around the red-tinged lettering of the movie's stars and production cast. Once we get past the strange disco ball-sounding opening, we cut to Washington, D.C., where we meet Andy and Charlie. The scene plays out nearly beat for beat as the novel. Uh, Andy's carrying Charlie in a rush, pushing his way through an endless crowd while being followed by the exposition police. Ah, and listen, listen, I I need to get this out of the way. I'm not going to make any qualms about this. I I thought that I was kind of polite with the Salem's Lot adaptation. I'm not going to be nearly as polite with this. This movie sucks. I'm sorry. Um, And the dialogue is pretty atrocious. Um, And I just mentioned the shop agents as being the exposition police because in their oh-so-natural conversation with one another, with one another uh, state, whatever you do, no eye contact. He can make you do what he wants. And this immediately lit a fire under me, pun intended. Um, first, it's just, it's bad writing. It suggests that at least one of the th- three shop members doesn't know why he's there in the first place. You know, maybe he thought they were going to go to whatever club the opening music was playing from. Second, it ruins the reveal of Andy's push. Let the audience find out about his powers by showing us his powers. We'll figure it out. We don't have to be told what we're about to see happens in a few moments. This reeks of studio interference. And it isn't hard to imagine an executive making a, a note on the script and saying that it should be clear, you know, just so you know there isn't any confusion. This train of thought is so insulting and it gets me every time and it gets me so many times in this movie. In fact, because we don't even see the guy who says it, I'll bet that it took place in post-production and was just inserted ungracefully into the scene. Two of the boneheads jump out of the car and chase after him. It's a good decision and adds a bit more action to the scene. However, the dialogue. The dialogue rears its ugly head again with Charlie telling us how she feels and what is happening. Daddy, I'm scared, she says, and daddy, they're coming. Either Charlie's a bit slow or the screenwriters think we are. Andy hails down a cab, jumps in, and shows us, shows us exactly what the shop agent just told us a second ago. And again, it would have been more effective if we just saw this happen. So we could go, whoa, what just happened? That's interesting. That's crazy. But nope, that scene was undercut. You know, our legs were cut out from underneath us. The wind was taken out of our sails, whatever you want to say. So the cab driver starts driving and ignores Larry Curley and Moe, who try and jump through the windows. I think the scene is supposed to be tense. I think it honestly is, but to me it just comes across as kind of goofy, which pretty much sums up the entire movie. The following exchange between Andy and the cab driver doesn't ease my concerns and has all the subtlety of an elementary school performance. Oh no, the cab driver says, and stops the cab, not for any reason other than the script tells him to, and then Andy grabs his head and gives an Oscar-worthy demonstration of telepathic acting. Rule number one, if you play a character with any sort of mental powers, you must always raise your hands to your head. It's a super subtle way of reminding the audience where your powers came from. Just in case we might forget, just point to your head. When Andy pushes the driver into seeing a $500 bill, the cab driver continues the already established tradition of just blurting out the obvious. I ain't turning down no $500, he exclaims. Andy closes his eyes and we get our first flashback to the Lot 6 experiments, which play out like a parody movie set in the 1970s than an actual 1970s movie. Between the 70s bearded proto-hipster and the woman who literally says, right on, man, off-screen to Vicky's question, it's just too much, much too much to take seriously. And then Andy, that charmer, leans in and shows that he's as much as a victim of obvious dialogue as anybody else. I'm broke too, he croons. Oh, Andy, what a charmer. What woman doesn't want to get swept off her feet with an admission of a lack of financial planning? Chalk this one up to no shit. Andy, you're in college. Everybody's broke, buddy. Props to the 70s bearded proto-hipster who delivers the line with a reading straight out of an after-school special. I can't do it justice. I'm just going to play it. But he just, he serves this one up for a home run. This is great. Are there any questions? Uh, Dr. Wanless, is this experiment being done by the shop? Director Mark Lester tries to make the experiment seem trippy. But again, it comes off as really, really cheesy. 
adding an echo effect to everyone's voice isn't enough to create a sense of drug-induced unreality, and the subsequent scene between Vicky and Andy is hard to stomach. With the following line, and I quote, all right, I'm not making this up. I love you. I've always loved you. I've known you for a thousand years. Vicky agrees and reciprocates and holds his hand. Um, and we're still in the beginning of this movie. And at this point, I want to gouge my eyes out, um, much like the guy in the Lot 6 experiments. Andy wakes up again, and the wonderful script requires him to declare, I have a headache. Andy and Charlie talk about their options, and Charlie, feeling sad for Andy, grabs his head and cries, Poor Daddy. No, no, not poor Daddy. Poor me. I have to watch this. Unlike the book, Andy is the one who pushes the change out of the payphone. It's a smart decision, I think, and it streamlines Charlie's power. In the novel, she was a fire starter, telekinetic, uh, psychic. Uh, here, she's just a fire starter with a little bit of psychic ability. And Andy is now a literal pusher. He pushes things. He pushes the channels on the television. He pushes the change out of the uh, telephone. He pushes people's thoughts. However, the, the movie demonstrates that aside from Charlie's ability for pyrokinesis, uh, as her hair starts blowing in the non-existent wind, it's clear that she also has the power to instantly turn the movie into a Maybelline commercial. After lighting the shoulders, the solder shoes on fire, Andy, Andy manhandles Charlie, and I swear to God, as he runs her out of the room, it looks like one of those Saturday Night Live skits where they replace a cast member with a dummy. It's great, and I started laughing hysterically. Uh, outside, Charlie continues the exposition dump again complaining how she hurt mommy in the kitchen and that they killed her. I'm not criticizing the fact that Charlie has guilt over this. That's an important character beat. What I am criticizing is the way that they address it in the movie. Um, and while on the run, Andy and Charlie jump off the highway, and rather than Charlie rolling out of the highway below, it's an already weakened Andy. And I think, good for you, Mark Lester, you've made a right choice here. Because what it does, it creates a vulnerable, frightened girl trying to revive her father before he's gauge-created. He comes to, and the two of them proceed to just say things that we already know in order to propel the plot forward and to remind us that they care about each other, as if the actions of the character wasn't enough to demonstrate this sentiment. Uh, literally, this is what they say. You're all I got in this world. I'm crazy about you. I'm crazy about you too, Daddy. We have to find a place to sleep. This is not the way that people talk. And I know that when writing, you're not supposed to write exactly the way people talk. But you do want to write in such a way that it is uh, creating a sense of the way that people talk. Um, you don't convey the obvious. And that's what this is. It is horrible to watch and when you notice it and you notice that and right away it's apparent that this is the path that the movie's going to take it's not a good path to go down the scene segues into another flashback and I maybe I didn't notice it the first time around but this is straight up straight up out of Wayne's world it has the exact same fade um, as uh, the, the Wayne and Garth's multiple endings to, to, to Wayne's world and my favorite part of the flashback the shop, just prank calling the house for no reason whatsoever. Um, whatever, that scene ends. And then we cut to the shop with Greg Stilson riding his bike. Oh, Greg Stilson, I'm sorry, I mean Martin Sheen. I mean Captain Stilson, what, whatever. Uh, whatever his name is, Martin Sheen. Um, again, in another great performance. For those of you who don't know, Martin Sheen's previous cinematic performance was playing Greg Stilson in David Cronenberg's adaptation of The Dead Zone. He plays Hollister. Um, with gravitas and tones down the crazy that he just, oh my God, unloaded on the screen in the dead zone. I mean, he just chewed up the scenery. It was great. It was a great experience to just sit back and watch this guy go to town. Um, here, he, he, he gives a different performance. I love it. It's fantastic. And along with Sheen, we have the legendary George C. Scott playing Rainbird. <laughs> okay, yeah, everybody. I love George C. Scott. And I think he also would have played a fantastic Hollister, but I, I think there is an issue anytime you have a Caucasian playing a Native American. Look no further than the controversy surrounding Johnny Depp's portrayal as Tonto in the recent Lone Ranger movie. Don't get me wrong, do not get me wrong, George C. Scott delivers an incredible performance, but mainly because it's George C. Scott, and he could sleepwalk his way to an Oscar. But if you wanted him in the role, that's fine, it's fine. 
Rainbird's Native American background is not essential to the character. It's not essential to the plot. He could be any ethnicity or nationality. Yeah, sure, you'd have to change the name, but other than that, his motivations and his character traits remain the same. But here you have a famous white actor playing a Native American when I can't even name one Native American actor. Please, just give a Native American actor a job. But anyway, the exchange between Hollister and Rainbird is purposely without warmth, but the sheer charisma of these two actors makes this dialogue crackle. You know, Hollister starts, he says, how's Venice? Sinking. Is our problem there solved? Our problem there is solved. Dr. Wanless is here. Well, Christ, there goes a beautiful day. Rainbird chuckles. Wanless's performance goes bonkers. He straddles the line between enthusiasm and overacting, which fits perfectly, I think. He is, after all, the mad scientist. With his wild hair and his wide eyes, he's able to excitedly ponder the ramifications of Charlie's abilities. His lunacy is magnified by the cool, calm quality of both Scott and Sheen. Now, <laughs> back to Andy and Charlie. Art Carney picks them up in a truck. The disco tones are replaced with what sounds like the introduction to a Gordon Lightfoot song. After destruction at the farm, and I know that I'm blowing through this pretty quickly, and I apologize, but they, they go to Granther's cabin and uh, where, where Andy and Charlie have a conversation as follows. Um... Charlie says, I want to be normal. Andy says, how do you feel? Charlie says, safe. And I I, I guess I, I, I hinted, um, well, I, didn't hint. I, I straight up said that I don't like this movie so far. Like, the production value is rudimentary, but what I really should have said was that the blocking and staging is rudimentary. Just examine the scene in which Charlie throws down the shop agents on the farm. Like, if you watch closely, you'll see Andy start to walk down the steps while speaking to the agents. The agents make a grab for him, and they're supposed to pull him off the steps. However, you can clearly tell, clearly, that David Keith pretends to be pulled off the steps by the agents, who haven't even touched him yet. It's as if Keith knew that he had to be in a specific place at a specific time, and it didn't matter how he got there. The end result, it looks like he's falling into the agents while acting like they pull him. It's just, it's just, it's just another example of this movie not working. Later, in a scene between Hollister and Rainbird, you might miss the limitations of the staging because you just might get caught up in the fact that it's, it's Sheen and Scott. You know, I wouldn't blame you. I was so thirsty for actual acting that I almost missed it myself. But this is what happens. So this is the staging. Sheen stands. Scott walks away to leave. Sheen calls him back. Scott turns and walks back to Sheen. Scott walks away to leave. Sheen calls him back. Scott turns and walks back to Sheen. The staging of the... He just goes back and forth. It's just back and forth. And then one says something, and then Scott walks away. It's just... It's, it's not great. The staging of the scene, it just summarizes the entirety of the movie. It is completely aimless. The scene itself, of course, is the reveal of Rainbird, that he wants Charlie for his own ends. It's only worth watching for the interplay between Scott and Sheen, and I wish, I just, I really wish that they had a better movie to play in. Um, the scene that follows is Rainbird's capture of the McGees, and despite the fact I'm not buying into the acting of the McGees themselves, it's hard to watch a scene that involves a little girl getting a dart to the neck. Any sympathy I have for the characters, however is completely abolished when Andy stands around the dock for the next five minutes, screaming at the trees when he could grab his unconscious daughter and run back into the cabin for shelter. Instead, he chooses to keep himself completely vulnerable, giving Rainbird time to reload, smoke a cigarette, take a nap, and get an oil change before shooting Andy as well. It's like that scene from Austin Powers with the guy about to get run over by the steamroller. He just won't get out of the way. Now, okay, with that said... With that said, I do have to give Mark Lester a lot of credit, and, and this is all, this is genuine, for the image of the shop agents emerging from the woods. Um, dressed in thermal suits, uh, they look like astronauts, and the way they make uh, their way from behind the trees and slowly, it, it's truly unsettling. It's a creepy, creepy image. Um, it's very effective, um, and it really highlights Rainbird's confidence because he's dressed casually in just jeans and a jacket. 
it's a great visual that reveals his control of the situation. Um, and I wish that there were more visual images like this in the movie, because uh, that one really stood out. And that is the only real effective shot for me of, of the movie. Now, um, from there, we get uh, scenes of the McGee's in the shop headquarters, um, which is just such an odd set design. It's like Mark Lister uh, ran out of budget on the fire special effects and had to film the shop scenes in his grandmother's house. Hollister gives Charlie some cocoa, which Charlie begins to talk to because the audience won't understand the fact that she doesn't want to use her powers if she can't tell us the following. No, back off, back off. You are not going to do it. Back off. She tells Hollister, even though we just watched her say this to her father right before she took the dart to the throat, say, I said I'd never start another fire in my life. She's one step away from saying, no, I am not going to use my powers because I promised my father I wouldn't do it anymore and I have to keep my promise until the very end of the movie. Hollister, by the way, refers to Charlie at least 10 times by her name, just in case the audience forgot what her name was, sounding something like this. Charlie, I think it's important, Charlie, to cooperate with us because, Charlie, you're a very special girl. You know you're a very special girl, right, Charlie? Can I call you Charlie, Charlie? The Smurfs have more variety in their sentences than our characters do in this movie. The scene then cuts to two orderlies trying to force something down Andy's throat, and again, because the filmmakers made this movie for Jack Nicholson at the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the orderly has to say, take these pills, come on, swallow. I'm not sure if this is footage of the movie or found footage of actor David Keith trying to escape production. On a side note, uh, I just realized that I really want to see a buddy cop movie starring David Keith and Keith David as themselves. I think that that is gold. Make it happen. In the next scene, Hollister rudely unwraps the presents he's giving to Charlie and then literally explaining what they are. Here's a wind-up cat doll. He says of the cat doll that winds up. Charlie then does what we all wish we could do ourselves and smothers her face with a pillow to put herself out of her misery. Then just to remind us that George C. Scott is supposed to be playing a Native American, he steps out wearing what looks to be a repurposed southwestern rug draped over his shoulders. Eventually, we get the scene where Charlie lets the shop run experiments on her, and I realize that every time we see Rainbird, George C. Scott gives a smug, silent guffaw that <laughs> just looks like he has gas. It's as if simply being in this movie is causing him indigestion. And I still can't get out over how every time she uses her powers, her hair blows back like she's the star of an 80s music video. And then, oh my god, I after Charlie uses her powers... Okay, stop, stop. After we watch Charlie... No, that's not even right. Look, after we watch Hollister, watch his people, watch Charlie use her powers, he goes on to explain to them everything they just watched her do. Did you see the water in that tub boil and the temperature gradient? Jesus! Did we get the audio? We got it. We did? Good deal. My God! Did you see what she did? Did you see that? My God! Is there anyone here that has any doubt that she didn't make that happen herself? Not huh? at all, Chief. None. Holy Christ, I knew something was going to happen, but I had no idea. That tray actually flew and she controlled it. And then she put her power in the tub and we got it. We got it all on tape and it's good enough to stand up in court right up in the goddamn Supreme Court. What are you looking so miserable about? Mr. Sheen, was that a rhetorical question? <laughs> because I can tell you what I look so miserable about. Because in the next scene, Hollister and Pincho provide running commentary for the blind audience during the next test on Charlie. The blocks are starting to burn. Send the blocks. Good Lord. Anyway, uh, when... Charlie and Andy reunite. Andy immediately discovers that John, the exterminator, who he let shoot both he and his daughter from a hiding place by refusing to move, again refuses to move when he finds out that again he is hiding out of sight. Now, when Andy uses his powers on Rainbird, it just it doesn't work in this movie. Uh, the cinematic demonstration of his powers requires a few seconds. His fingers have to dig into his hair like he's cramming for a geometry final. Um, in the novel, Rainbird had him dead to rights, and it was like a Western shootout at high noon. You know, whoever could draw the fastest was the victor, and when given the opportunity, Andy forced John to just jump because it was the quickest thing he could do, right? Here, he manages to get inside Rainbird's mind 
and could conceivably have him do anything, like, for instance, maybe tell him to blow his brains out? Telling him to just jump is simply not effective <laughs> and seals his own fate. Hey, maybe he was trying to write himself out of this atrocious movie. And then it's the end, you know, with both Hollister and Rainbird dead, you know, the end, despite effects, you know, lacks any tension. Yeah, sure, you want to see her burn the place to the ground, but there's no conflict there. And it doesn't help that the only emotion that Drew Barrymore manages to convey is a sense that she's out of breath. I mean, rewatch it, it looks like she just ran a 10K. And she does start to cry when the shop explodes, and in case we forgot why she did, she goes and explains, for you, Daddy. I'm surprised that she didn't add, because they killed you. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is the movie Firestarter. I saw it when I was younger, and I I don't remember it being good, um, but I don't remember it being like this. This was something else. Now, um, I'm going to do a very, very short book versus movie um, section. Uh, so Hollister, book versus movie, who's better? Is it the, the Hollister in the book? or the Martin Sheen version of the movie. I'm actually going to go with Martin Sheen. I, I think that he does a good job, and I think that when you see how different he plays his character than he did Greg Stilson in The Dead Zone, um, I, I think you, you just definitely start to see the range of, of Martin Sheen. Um, the, the villain, the um, the Hollister in the, the book, he's a good villain, but uh, I, I just think that Martin Sheen's charisma really really crackles and i know that i was you know cracking on on the scene earlier where he just describes everything that we already saw but it does serve some purpose you know i mean he's just so exuberant that he saw it happen you know he's like a you know he's a kid on christmas day um and that that energy and that passion is there simply because martin sheen is a phenomenal actor so i'm gonna go with um i'm gonna go with the movie i'm gonna go with the movie on this one john rainbird look i know that we have george c scott uh, but look, he's a white guy. Um, this is a Native American character, and they're playing him as if he is Native American. Hey, you know what? I didn't do my research. For all I know, I came across as a complete ass, and George C. Scott is Native American. Um, so shame on me. Um, actually, I'm gonna stop recording right now. I'm gonna check that out just to be sure. Okay, I'm back. He's not Native American. My my complaints are valid. Uh, look, um, Rainbird in the book is he's a fantastic character. I said in the the book review, I, I think that he's one of uh, Stephen King's uh, forgotten villains. Um, and as much as I love George C. Scott's performance, he does a great job. And the scenes between he and Martin Sheen are are definitely the highlights of this movie. Um, I, I have to go with the book. Uh, he's he's a great 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 villain um, in the book. Uh, so I'm going with the book. Um, so the, the book wins that category as well. Andy, let's look at Andy. Um, you know, David Keith, uh, uh, he's kind of a lunkhead. Um, he has charm and he's likable. He has the weary, uh, you know, dogged determination of his novel counterpart. He's desperately trying to remain positive despite the circumstance. But, um, I don't know. I, I just, I, I just, I, I'm going to go with the book on this one. Um, I don't really have any reason. I can't back it up and I apologize, but I, I'm going to go with the book and Charlie, I'm going with the book also, um, because she's a very, very fully well-rounded character in the book and nothing against Drew Barrymore. I mean, she's a kid. She did a great job, you know, as a kid, um, she did everything that she was asked to do, which really wasn't much. And she's not responsible for the dialogue that they forced to come out of her mouth. Um, she was a walking, um, you know, expository machine, just, just spitting out plot points and feelings. She's not a human. <laughs> she's just a, some sort of movie robot uh, storytelling device. It's, it, so, you know, it's not, it's not you, Drew Barrymore. It's, it's the part that was written for you. Um, you know, Charlie in the, the, the book is just so much more a young kid that had to be a lot older due to the circumstances in her life. And there's a tragedy there. There's a sadness there. There's an unfairness there. And I think all that is missing from the, from the movie. So, Hey, what's the, you know, I, I know you've been on the edge of your seat trying to figure out the answer to this one. What's better, the book or the movie? What am I going to go with? Well, I'm going, I'm going with the book clearly. Um, you know, if you need any more reasons, you can go back and check out my, my review of the book last week. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, that is my review 
of Firestarter the movie. Come back next week for my review of um, Man vs. Nature in the form of Woman vs. Dog, uh, Stephen King's famously uh, written under the influence novel Cujo. Um, this was a really interesting one to read. Um, so make sure you tune in next week to, to hear my thoughts on it. And the following week, I will review the movie. Uh, so, um, you know, at the top of the podcast, you know, I read a bunch of viewer emails and I would love to, to keep this tradition alive. This is now the second podcast, which I was able to, to read viewer emails. So, um, please, please share your thoughts on any of the books or movies that I reviewed so far. Um, and just give me your own anecdotes on reading Stephen King. Tell me what Stephen King means to you. Um, and you can write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, please check out uh, the Instagram page, the Facebook page, the Tumblr, the Pinterest, the Twitter, all Stephen Kingcast. Um, and I again, I'm going to ask if you have time, you know, definitely check out the the, the iTunes review um, and you know leave a review. Uh, if you've listened and you've liked it, uh, just you know just take a minute and uh, and just write a quick review. Like I said, if if you get a chance, because I think that it would go on to help. Um, promote the podcast certainly and get others to, to listen to it and, and kind of make the conversation just go a, a little bit wider so thank you everyone for listening to the review this week I hope you all have a great week um, and I'll see you here again same King Time same King Channel Stephen King Castle.